This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Ontario's premier will be testifying as a crown witness at an election bribery trial for two liberals. Uh, she said, quote, I will testify. I'll go along with the process and do what I can to clarify, as I have in the legislature many, many, many times. Uh, this in regard to uh, being a crown witness at the election bribery or the election act bribery trial for two liberals, uh, putting the Ontario premier in the direct spotlight of an already politically charged case, says the Canadian press. Uh, Pat Cerbera, the premier's former deputy chief of staff, faces two bribery charges under the election act. Uh, Jerry Lougheed, former liberal fundraiser, faces one charge. Uh, this is all set to start in uh, September, September 7th, uh, and could mean that the verdict is delivered just months before the 20, uh, June 2018 election. Uh, the pair is accused of offering a would-be candidate a job for uh, a job or appointment to get him to step down in the 2015 by-election in Sudbury uh, for Wynn's uh, pre- uh, preferred candidate, Glenn Tebolt, who, of course, is the energy minister. Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, Brickmaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. Thank you for taking the time. We always appreciate it. Now, a member of, of her party is charged. Wynne will testify for the Crown, who are prosecuting those people. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I think we have a situation where someone has a tape, uh, you know, where inducements are offered to him if he doesn't uh, present himself as a candidate. I mean, it's on that basis that we have these charges of violating the uh, the Provincial uh, Elections Act, where you're not allowed to offer people inducements not to run. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was a you know, it, it's never a good day for a premier to have to stand in front of a court because just the uh, sight of it, people think that the premier is involved in some kind of form of wrongdoing. But in a case like this, it's hard to see uh, Kathleen Wynne having much choice. Uh, I mean, I don't think she has a degree of trust with Ontarians. Uh, where her attempt to say, well, no, I shouldn't go in and, and testify because I have parliamentary uh, you know, privilege, I don't think that would have necessarily been that good for the optics where people would say, well, here's a premier who we don't trust who probably has something to hide. So she has to go there, but I think as a result she's going to pay the price of people saying, well, look, you know, here's a premier sitting in front of the court talking about whether or not her uh, right-hand uh, fixer, uh, Pat Sorbera, uh, you know, was uh, executing her orders ultimately. Uh, in asking this candidate not to run. Will we ever find out if, in fact, he was executing those orders? Uh, Well, I mean, presumably they have to testify under oath, but I I think these things are so murky, uh, where there's expectations about what people want and they're uh, channeled through, uh, you know, these others, that it, uh, you know, ultimately... I mean, Kathleen Wynne is likely to say, no, I didn't actually ask Pat Sorbera to offer that uh, position. I, in fact, had already decided that Andrew Oliver was not going to run. And so, uh, you know, we shouldn't be charging these two people because they weren't actually offering an inducement because he was never going to run. Um, But, you know, I think for most Ontarians, I think this is going to show up as a kind of somewhat slimy politics, uh, again, of, you know, offering inducements uh, or offering promises of jobs to people uh, to do your bidding. Uh, what does it say that she's being called by the prosecution as opposed to defending these people who worked for her? Well, I presume uh, the the Crown wants uh, wants to have it be that uh, that uh, uh, Lougheed and uh, Sorbera were acting, you know, on their own rather than under orders. Uh, so that if there's guilt, it's you know quite clearly theirs rather than that of the Premier. That probably suits a Premier in her own right uh, because she can go and say, "Look, I did nothing wrong." 
uh, you know, mistakes were made by these other people, but, uh, you know, I'm blameless. And so, you know, just whereas the, uh, you know, the opposition parties have been calling me corrupt and crooked for this in question period for the past six months, well, look, there's nothing there. Uh, I did nothing wrong. And so on all these other files where they're also calling me corrupt and crooked, uh, you can trust me on those too. Can you have someone or some people that are so closely linked to the Premier and the Premier not knowing what's going on? Well, I mean, I think that's one way in which, uh, you know, this uh, is going to be difficult uh, for her as for any politician. I mean, in a way, uh, I suspect people like Pat Sorbera, uh, I mean, a bit similar to when we were talking about this whole Duffy thing and, you know, whether did, did, does Stephen Harper know what Nigel Wright was doing? Um, there's a way in which these fixers are meant to keep their uh, superiors in a sort of form of ignorance, uh, precisely, so that they, you know, will be safe in these kinds of situations. But you're right. I mean, it's, you know, what kind of ignorance is that? I mean, they know that these things are being done, but, you know, being willfully ignorant of the details, uh, but not at a level, you know, where in the courts it would count as willfully ignorant, they they get off. I mean, it's not it's not really uh, the kind of behavior that is, uh, you know, that endearing to most uh, to most people. But I think that's part of that relationship, that the political fixer does a fixing and doesn't provide all the details in order to, you know, provide some plausible deniability to the political leader. So will these two fall on the sword, or uh, will they implicate the premier? Well, I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure they won't implicate the premier. I think through this whole process, they've shown themselves to recognize what their job entails. Uh, I suspect they're going to make the argument that they can't, in fact, have been offered an undue inducement because the decision had already been made that this person wasn't going to be a candidate and that they were simply only, you know, offering some kind of form of consolation prize. Uh, you know, as such, uh, you know, it would save them from the uh, uh, the aspect of the Ontario uh, Elections Act where, you know, they, if the person wasn't going to be a candidate, they weren't offering an inducement. Uh, I suspect for most of the public watching, they'll nevertheless say, well, how come, you know, these posts, you know, some of them paid by public money are being offered uh, for these sort of partisan reasons. And so, uh, you know, it may not look great in the end, but I suspect that that's going to be the, the form of defense that Lawheed and Sobrera are going to take. Now, they can't have offered inducements because the decision had already been made. Uh, just because the decision had already been made, that does that mean they weren't trying to make things right when it comes to Oliver? Does that mean, you know, I, I understand that, you know, their point is, well, the decision's already been made, so why would we need to offer him bribes? Well, did he know that? I mean, that's all a timeline issue, isn't it? Yeah, it is a timeline issue. And, I mean, there's aspects in the recorded uh, the recordings that, uh, that Mr. Olivier came up with that uh, somewhat contradict this idea that the decision had been made because they were really asking him still to step aside or to let this one pass and so on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it does become a timeline issue. I, I mean, in a way, there's, I think the, the uh, what it maybe shows to the Ontario public beyond the kind of the specifics of it is just the sense of entitlement in this government, although probably in most governments, in being able to use the ability to appoint uh, to achieve pretty narrow partisan ends. And, uh, you know, in this way, I think it is damaging for the, the, the Liberal government because it sits with other examples that were, I mean, in many ways far worse, you know, such as the treatment of the gas plants uh, in the election before last, where, you know, the idea is, is that if you've got a problem, well, you can just write a check on the public dime to make it go away. Uh, and, and I think this is, you know, on a sort of much smaller scale, a sort of similar idea. They, they had a problem. 
wasn't actually a big problem in in uh, Oliver they had a very good candidate but they you know wanted to do this uh, this attempt to really uh, stab the NDP by getting Glenn Tebow to move from, you know, the the uh, federal NDP caucus to being their candidate. And so they chose to do that instead, and that involved, you know, the cost of probably having to offer some kind of consolation to, you know, their local candidate. Uh, you know, again, it's uh, probably not the uh, sort of message that they want to send to Ontarians a year away from the election, Given that there's other examples, I think of this government trying to use the uh, you know the public purse to make problems go away. Uh, either Olivier has the ta- or the recordings, or he doesn't. Is this not pretty cut and dry? Once once listening to these, uh, again we haven't, so I guess we're speculating. Well, but either either they will be uh, obvious or not. Won't, wouldn't you think? Yes, I'd think so. Uh, I mean, we we've seen you know bits of them that have already been come out in the media. Uh, uh, you know, it seems quite clear that, uh, particularly Sorbera, uh, you know, is making this idea, is putting forward this idea that uh, Mr. Olivier had to step aside, and if he did, uh, there would be a benefit to him, uh, which seems to kind of not uh, jibe with the idea ultimately that the decision had already been made. But you know, I presume that uh, these are skilled political operatives, so they'll come up with some sort of complex story about why they were trying to save his feelings or something by make it seem like his decision rather than the premier having already made it, or what have you. I, I have no clue, uh, you know, how uh, judges make sense of these kinds of claims. Uh, uh, I, I suspect they'll find good reason to see, uh, uh, you know, Mr. I mean, who have come this far. In fact, they must feel that uh, that the, the tapes have a lot of uh, value in them. Uh, and so in that case, I mean, we may well see uh, a form of uh, infraction of the uh, Provincial Elections Act. I mean, I guess part of it for people who are kind of closer into politics, the idea that sort of minor forms of patronage get used to uh, ensure that you get the right candidate in the right riding probably seems, uh, you know, not uh, such, you know, a strange thing. And is this really an improper inducement? But I suspect that the court's will probably have a, you know, a more consistent idea of, uh, of things like you know, offering bribes or offering inducements and, and not give a special exception uh, to the politicians and the sort of political way of, of dealing with these questions. So this happens all the time in one form or another? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, the inducements and promises are of different orders, and uh, some of them are probably within uh, the law and others are not. I mean, clearly, uh, you know, Glenn Tebow agreed to run in this by-election and to leave his federal seat. There was probably some, you know, promise made to him that he would become a cabinet minister in short order. Um, You know, whether that actually, you know, was improper in terms of the law, it probably was fine within the law. But, you know, in cases like this, uh, I think often promises are made. Promises are made to people that if they were to run as a candidate, that the leader would come into their riding uh, during the election to help support them or that there would be other forms of, you know, funds uh, sent to a riding to ensure they could run a good campaign. I mean, there's a lot of forms of promises made to try and recruit the right candidate for the right riding. Uh, but again, to offer, you know, the, to give the idea that people might have access to some kind of public job, you know, that it's in the government's hands to distribute becomes a bit more of an issue. It's not a party just redistributing its resources. It's a party using the resources of all Ontarians 
uh, to try and find the right candidate, and, and that should concern us a bit more, even if that's not the specific question before us, which is whether an inducement was offered to uh, encourage him not to run. Uh, obviously, having this in the limelight uh, doesn't do much, as you mentioned, less than a year outside of an election. Uh, that being said, the gas plant from the McGuinty era uh, still has to go work its way through the system as well and, and could peak just after this. Uh, where does this leave the Liberals? How do they, how do they, how do they control this damage? Well, I, I mean, I think for the Liberals, it's really to uh, put an emphasis on what they're going to, what they have done, and what they're going to do in terms of the things that matter most to Ontarians. I mean, I think it's a government that you know has been there since 2003, and so uh, you know it's hard for any government to sustain the trust of the public because they have to make decisions that displease them. They get a bit too comfortable with the levers of power and with the public's money, and, and so they get a, a kind of reputation such that this government has as not being trustworthy and as maybe being, uh, you know, a bit too uh, quick to treat the public's money as their own. Uh, you know, so that's a problem for them. But the other side, they've been successful, I think, in getting Ontarians to think that they've been doing a reasonable job on health care and on education, uh, as well as on things like investing in, uh, you know, road infrastructure, uh, improving transit in the, the GTA, I mean, things like that uh, that are important to people. Um, you know, on that, the government seems to have been fairly successful in polling, showing, you know, a desire to see a change of government, nevertheless doesn't seem to be saying that they feel the government failed on these core files. So for, I think, wins re-election, uh, you know, her strategy has to be go by going back to, to emphasize these kinds of projects and to raise questions about whether, you know, Andrea Horvath or Patrick Brown could be trusted to continue that kind of management. But, uh, yeah, I don't think you can sweep these things under the rug. What you can do is to try and uh, divert people's attention and say, well, the real issue is actually delivering these things, you know, not on certain sort of more ethical aspects of how we've been governing. Uh, only got about a minute left here. How should Andrea Horvath and Patrick Brown handle this latest news and, of course, uh, the testimony? Uh, I think they should stand back and, uh, you know, let it be covered as a straight court case. Uh, you know, and once it's done, I think, you know, the, the evidence will be there that they can pull out and say, well, wait a second, it's not good to have a premier in front of the courts uh, on these kinds of situations. It, it it's really diminishes, you know, us as Ontario citizens, and it's it's uh, bad for our, our system. I, th- I think in some ways they've been playing it too heavy. Uh, you know, the charges are important, but they aren't huge. Uh, they aren't criminal charges. It's maybe more important to step back and say, well, wait a second, this is a sad day for Ontario when... Our, you know, our government has to be hauled in front of the court in this manner. Peter Grape has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Ontario Premier, of course, uh, testifying as a Crown Witness at the Election Act bribery trial for two Liberals in Sudbury. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Intelligence officials believe that North Korea could have a reliable intercontinental ballistic missile by next year, uh, speeding up, I guess, uh, further predictions of when they may have one. Um, the, uh, the interesting leader over there is constantly trying to get the world's attention, and uh, looks like he's finally done it with his uh, July 4th. How apropos uh, test, which uh, I guess is confirming uh, what I've just said. Simon Palomar is with us right now, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. And on the line with us now, hi, Simon. How are you today? 
Oh, well, Scott, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time as usual. We much appreciate it, Simon. You know, there was a time a few years ago when we were chatting about this, even when Dennis Rodman was going over, uh, and people just would sort of take uh, this leader with a grain of salt. Uh, that has clearly changed, hasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, this has been, you know, we talk about the, the North Korean nuclear crisis. I mean, this has been something that's decades in the making, this slow march that uh, North Korea has been on towards developing you know, nuclear weapons, developing the missiles to deliver them. And they see it as the ultimate guarantee of their their security. Um, and it always felt like uh, it's off in the distance. That ultimately, it's one of its policy problems. If you're in Washington, you can kind of kick the can down the road. It's concerning. It's vexing. It's potentially destabilizing in uh, you know a very uh, well armed and important part of the world. But ultimately, it's it's off in the distance. And you know now, this last couple of years, things have changed. Um, North Korean government looks like it's been more successful than we thought they had been previously. They are maybe getting a little bit better at uh, the engineering, the manufacturing aspects of uh, missile designs. And now it's becoming, uh, you know, now is the day when, you know, U.S. policymakers in particular, not to mention those in Japan, China, etc., now have to start thinking about the reality of living with uh, a nuclear-armed North Korea. So how close are they? How does it change the discussion? Well, I certainly can't tell you how close they are. Uh, There's probably no one in Canada or the United States or even in North Korea who really knows how close they are. But the the estimates keep on tightening up. You know, the the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the U.S. intelligence agency that's reported on this, that they now believe it's looking like, you know, next year, 2018 sometime, they could have a working ICBM. Well, that suggests that, you know, we're probably closer than we, we, we thought we were. How does this change things? I mean, it, it ultimately is a matter of, you know, in the past, uh, governments in the United States in particular talk about, you know, this can never happen, you're never going to see this happen, that our goal is still denuclearization. I think now it's a matter of, uh, especially in Washington, where they've been very slow to adjust this reality, to, it's time for them to start thinking about what do you do to deter North Korea? How do you manage the problem? Not so much solve it, but manage it. Uh, talk about Canada specifically. Are we protected? What can we do uh, as being allies of the United States? How are we protected here in Canada? And North America, for that matter. It's a, it's a good question. Because in the past, Canada has been reluctant to join uh, the United States on continental missile defense. You know, there's a few reasons for that. But well, in, your uh, listeners might remember when Paul Martin was prime minister, uh, George W. Bush wanted Canada to participate in a program that would install uh, interceptor missiles in western Canada, western United States, to you know, shoot down, uh, presumably, uh, a rogue North Korean missile, also Russian and Chinese missiles for that matter. And Canada declined for a number of reasons. One, um, the Canadian government wasn't convinced that this technology would actually work very reliably. There were also concerns that it could actually antagonize uh, Russia and China, who have to rely on their their nuclear arsenal as sort of their ultimate guarantor of security. And if we take that away, they'll have to improve them. So Canada doesn't have, you know, a direct role in continental missile defense. But what we have seen uh, recently is 
uh, South Korea is now purchasing and installing ballistic missile defenses, the ability essentially to shoot uh, North Korean ballistic missile down as it's taking off when it's still low in the atmosphere. And Canada, directly or indirectly, would benefit from that. But it also might be time that uh, the Canadian government starts thinking a little bit more about its uh, posture in Asia. For a long time, Canadian government's talked about, you know, Asia, East Asia is the future of the global economy. Canada needs to trade with China more, invest with China more. And the fact is, if Canadian firms get involved in East Asia, then what happens on the Korean Peninsula, whether we like it or not, you know, becomes more relevant to us. So, you know, defense planners are probably looking at, you know, the long-term ramifications here. Is the U.S. going to deploy more Navy to the West Coast? Are they going to focus more of their efforts there? And that could affect Canadian policy down the road. So can you just load up with, uh, you know, bringing allies in from all over and just stack them around South Korea and Japan? Is that enough of a deterrent? I mean, this guy just seems to be going. There's nothing that's stopping him. He's going to keep going till he gets one. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, because if we look at his father, um, uh, Kim Jong-il, uh, Kim Jong-il is, you know, a, quite an impressive American military presence in South Korea. The South Korean military itself is quite capable of handling uh, the North Korean armed forces in a conventional fight. And yet he would continue to provoke South Korea uh, a few years ago. The North Korean Navy sunk a South Korean frigate. Uh, in the past, recent past, they've uh, fired artillery shells at South Korean islands. So there is evidence that simply, you know, the threat of retaliation, it's not going to stop all the bad behavior of uh, the North Korean government. But I think when it comes to, you know, how to deal with a, you know, a nuclear-armed North Korea, the idea that that Pyongyang would use a nuclear weapon I mean, it's very far-fetched because they know it would be signing essentially their their death warrant and the end of their uh, the end of the the Kim regime in North Korea. It would be a very it would be a desperate move, something done only in you know during the darkest hours. But I mean, many thought we'd never get to where we are. So is that that far-fetched? I, I don't think it is. Because, I mean, it is a different situation. It's a different situation. You know, using a nuclear weapon versus having one. I mean, Fidel Castro even had them in his hands at one point and, you know, and, and bragged about his willingness to defy the United States. But, but you know, even there, even during those tensest times, you know, cooler heads prevailed. Managing North Korea at this point, I mean, allies are going to be part of it. It's also going to be, uh, you know, a big part of that task is, you know, Western countries, Canada included, need to figure out how to work with, uh, with China. Because we don't want to say that China's a hostage to North Korea, but China has this small volatile country on its border that it doesn't want it to collapse. It doesn't want it to start a war, but it doesn't want to push too hard because those two outcomes could occur. So understanding the Chinese perspective and their sensitivities and how much they're willing to do, I mean, it sounds perhaps a little too optimistic that if we just understand the Chinese better, we can figure it out. But in fact, is long run, there's going to have to be some understanding between, you know, Washington and Beijing about, you know, 
how far Washington can push before they start to really um, make the Chinese concerned about the situation there. Uh, are the Chinese more concerned about North Korea or the U.S. reaction to it? And, and again, you know, we've asked this question a million times. Why are they not the ones responsible for holding the thumb over North Korea? I mean, at the end of the day, as, as, as noisy and, and as irritating as North Korea is, I mean, couldn't China pretty much snuff that out fast? Well, that's, a, that's sort of a, a tough-to-answer question because the Chinese, you know, they don't want, you know, 5 million North Korean refugees coming over their yeah. border. They don't want uh, a unified uh, Korean peninsula that is uh, friendly to the United States and, you know, hostile to China. I mean... The China's in the unenviable position of, you know, they're both concerned about North Korea and what happens internally, and they're concerned about the American reaction, and they they need to, to straddle that line. Now, one of the, the newest policy proposals from the United States is that they are going to start holding China accountable for, uh, the Chinese government accountable for Chinese firms that trade with North Korea. Now, there is that is a potentially an idea that has some some legs. Some people have been saying, you know, the Chinese government needs to enforce their own domestic law that says you can't trade with North Korea. That being said, they don't want to push too hard. And, I mean, ultimately, let's put it this way, the Chinese government has figured out how to live with this regime, you know, since since its birth. They, they know how to manage it, and they, well, they might, you know, militarily you know, dwarf North Korea, it's it's a situation where they uh, you know they don't want to they don't want to cut off a limb and, and have it bleed uncontrollably. These are really awkward metaphor. Uh, it's it's a situation that they do have to handle delicately, and I think they're fairly confident they can live with North Korea. They might not be happy about it, but they can live and manage them. Uh, have has the world waited too long to intervene uh, to stop this arms race? Arguably, yes. Um, it's important to remember that. Uh, <clears throat> Pardon me. In the 2000s, there was a, a negotiating process to to put a freeze on North Korea's nuclear activities. It worked at times. You know, we saw the occasional um, concession from North Korea, whether it's decommissioning some nuclear facilities, putting a pause on activities, and then you know what would happen is the the parties got too close on a certain issue. They hit on, uh, for example a bank that uh, might have been financing illicit activity in North Korea that also maybe held a lot of assets of North Korean regime members. And when they tried to sanction that bank, that was, you know, that was a, that was a bridge too far for the North Koreans. And they, 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 you know, cut off talks. Now it's not to say that we should negotiate with North Korea thinking that they're always going to negotiate in good faith, but there was a feeling that when the talks ended, well, you know, things are moving slowly there. This is a problem that's, you know, decades in the future. It'll, it, it will be a problem, but not now. We have time to come up with a solution. And too much time on your hands, I mean, it's very seductive. It gives you, you know, gives you an excuse to wait. It gives hmm. you an excuse to make those hard decisions the next day. So arguably, we had some really imperfect ways of dealing with North Korea that didn't get us everything we want, wanted. But, you know... We, we, I think we did perhaps kick the can too much and rely on the fact that North Korea faced huge technical hurdles that they weren't able to solve for many years. Well, given enough time, they solved them. 
Uh, as we've mentioned, the old reaction uh, to him was to just ignore him. Many times, uh, world leaders wouldn't even acknowledge him, uh, meaning Kim Jong-un and, and, and what the family stood for. Um, and obviously, you've spoke about how, you know, gaining nuclear power certainly uh, gives one, the, you know, the right to flex muscles. Uh, is it, are we at the point now where we have to finally acknowledge this guy and, and bring him to the table uh, just because he does have the power that, that he does? And, you know, even if it's just making him think that and so he can sell to his people that he's getting the respect he feels he deserves. Yeah, I think there's still a lot of reluctance to do that in the United States. Even if Donald Trump has hinted that he might be willing to speak with the the, the North Korean leader at some point, I mean, there's still a, a lot of resistance in the Department of Defense and the State Department and the U.S. Congress, and that I think is still going to continue to keep a lid on that option. But if you look at a uh, you know South Korea, which is arguably the, the country most threatened by um, any uh, developments in North Korea, the new, the new uh, president there, I mean, says he's willing to talk. And, uh, you know, in South Korea for a long time, there has been a divide about, you know, what's the appropriate way to deal with North Korea? Is it to take a hard line? Is it to try to um, open negotiations, open dialogue, see if there's any movement that can be made in the relationship? And, and, and South Korean politics have flipped back and forth to, you know, one side winning the argument, the other side winning the argument. And right now, the combination of elections in, in South Korea, new president, um, these successes that the North Korean government has had, um, there is at least, I think, uh, an appetite there to, you know, offer a hand, see what happens. Not being too optimistic about the outcome, not thinking this is going to, you know, bring an end to the Korean War and, you know, solve, you know, 50 years of, 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 of heartache for divided families, but that um, other measures haven't succeeded. Taking a hard line hasn't, you know, fully succeeded. So, you know, it is perhaps time to, to, to find a way to try to, to coexist. How would China feel if uh, Trump decides he, he wants to meet with Kim Jong-un uh, and, you know, cozy to up to a, a relationship similar that some accuse him of having with Putin? I think uh, I think Xi Jinping and the the Communist Party of China would insist that they be in the room at all as well. That would be a very hard meeting for them to, to stand aside and watch. You know, the the world's only superpower and a, and a country that you know China sees the United States as you know a valuable economic partner, but in the long run as a as a potential rival on a whole host of issues. And if the United States, the American president, or the talk to the you know, North Korean Supreme Leader right in China's backyard, that would be something where the, where the Chinese would have to, they'd want to play gatekeeper, that they cannot simply allow Americans to you know, intervene on affairs right up on their border on that level. And there would be a, a very strong response from, uh, from Beijing, and I would assume they would find a way to make it a, a, a three-way meeting instead of a, a one-on-one. Would that be a bad thing? Not necessarily, but that but we we fall into an old problem there in that the United States is allies in the region, Japan yeah. and South Korea in particular, they don't want their prime military ally talking with two potential rivals without them in the room. And you go back to the situation where it's hard to have that bilateral talk in this part of the world. That 
anytime somebody is frozen out of the talks, you know, you can very quickly know those worst case scenarios that decisions that affect you are going to be made with you without you at the table. So you need to be there. I've always found it fascinating that the citizens of North Korea have been somehow been under a blanket in all of this. What about fighting this with propaganda? Um, isn't there a way to somehow expose North Koreans to more of what's going on in the world? Uh, yeah, that's certainly done to an extent already. Uh, there are efforts to uh, broadcast radio into North Korea, similar to what uh, Western Europe did during the Cold War, you know, broadcasting radio-free Europe mm-hmm. into the, the Soviet-dominated world. There are efforts to smuggle uh, uh, flash drives, USB sticks, whether by drone or uh, balloon or other ways into North Korea to spread um you know, even something like South Korean soap operas, so people can watch them on computers and get a taste of life um, beyond their borders. You know, these are very dangerous activities, particularly dangerous for um, North Koreans who are caught, for example, with uh, with um, documentaries, news, etc., from South Korea. But those efforts are underway, and you know, they do have some success. We do see this trickle of defectors. Uh, coming across from North Korea into into China, typically. It is, however, a trickle, and it's very hard for them to, to practically impossible for them to go back and tell people, look, there is, there is a world out there beyond North Korea. It's not as bad as our government says it is. There is hope, and it's, it's a a tragic situation, but, there, but though that is certainly part of the effort to undermine the Kim regime. We've only got a few seconds left here, Simon. So uh, where does this go? I mean, does it just keep ramping up until more sanctions? Where do you see this in the next year or so? I mean, I think right now the, the, the Trump administration, I mean, given their distractions with uh, you know the Russia probe and, and uh, failure of the Republican legislative agenda, I would but have a hard time thinking they're going to do anything other than continue hardline rhetoric. You know, CIA Director Mike Pompeo the other day said that, you know, we need to find some way to separate Kim from his nuclear arsenal, which really sounds like regime change. Hmm. I think right now the Americans are going to stay on that line. Uh, but I I do suspect that you're, we've probably got people in State Department and Defense saying it is time to start, you know, talking more closely with our allies and, and figure out, you know, if this is the new normal, if a nuclear-armed North Korea, you know, one that can deliver nuclear weapons is, if we're going to, that's going to happen, we need to figure out a way to manage it and live with it. Simon Palomar has been with us, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. There's a Wisconsin company wanting to microchip their employees to allow them to open doors, pay for purchases, share business cards with ease, do everything that you do during your normal business day. I don't know about you, but I've talked about this for years. And I can't wait for the day they can put a chip in my head and I just go up against the old bank machine or against the gas pump. And instead of dragging my card out and remembering a code, hey, man, just pull it out of my melon, will you please? But, of course, there's two, sti- there's two sides to that. Uh, but the question we're asking you, would you try a chip in your head instead of carrying around ID, no credit cards, driver's license, debit card, health card? It's all in your melon. Or in this case, between your thumb and index finger. I guess that looks a little better than just banging your head up against the, uh, the green machine or whatever it is that you're using. 
Uh, let's bring in uh, Ted Chrysanis. He's a tech journalist by TeddyK.com to find out more, and he is with us now. Hello, Ted. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, what are your thoughts? Do you think people are ready for this? I remember it wasn't that long ago. People were screaming about security cameras. Now, of course, we have one of those in, in every phone. Are we, are we closer than we think to a chip in the head or between the uh, index finger and the thumb? Well, I think anecdotally, what happened with this particular company in Wisconsin is kind of an interesting case because the owners were surprised at the, at the feedback they got. Uh, when they put this out there, they had about 85 employees, and they put this out there and they thought, okay, well, you know, maybe we'll get a few uh, who will be willing to do this. Instead, they got 50 of the 85 who said, who volunteered to say, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely take this chip. And the, the chip in this case is being implanted in between the thumb and the forefinger, so not in the head. Uh, but uh, so the idea being that they can wave their hands and then they can you know, get through doors and it's basically replacing uh, the, the the key card uh, that they would otherwise be wearing. So some employees will still keep those, whereas others will just basically be waving their hands around uh, so that their hand becomes like an RFID tag. Don't you think we should have the option to put the chip wherever we want, though? Really. Well, this is the business is paying for it in this case, so I guess they can determine where it goes. Um, and and of course, it's it, it's only it, it's a one way talking type of situation, if I can describe it that way, because it's RFID. So it's basically just you know it's not being you're not being tracked with this chip. It's not something that can be. I don't even think it could be hacked. To be very honest with you, so it's 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 innocuous uh, on paper, but of course, with anything that is uh, bionic like this. Uh, you know, there's definitely going to be some question marks because we just don't know really how far it can go. Uh, on the whole conspiracy thing, are we naive to think that we it, it can't be triggered with something else? I mean, you know, the whole Russian hacking thing, uh, Ted. Like, are we are we naive to think that you know uh, they they don't have GPS on it now, but maybe there's something inside they can flip a switch? You never know. I mean, that's the thing with tech is that there's always an unknown as to what the fallout might be. I mean, the initial intention is obvious, uh, you know, usually is obvious, but then sometimes the, uh, you know, the unintentional consequences, it can really come out of nowhere and surprise people. So I can understand the trepidation some people will have over what this means moving forward, but I would not be surprised if a lot of people actually jump on board and say, hey, you know what, yeah, put a chip in my head. Uh, if it means that, you know, um, I can I can do things easier or, you know, even if it's, for medical reasons, it can track me in some way or, or track the progress of something I'm suffering from, uh, then, yeah, I mean, by all means, uh, do it. So I think it will depend on the use case, but I think there will be a number of different reasons why people will want chips inside. Um, th- as you mentioned, this is pretty much uncharted territory, and, you know, although here it is now in impl- in, in uh, being uh, implicated, or, uh, sorry, uh, being used, uh, why would a company want to do this? Why would they even want to venture down this road, considering it might open themselves up to unknown liability? Um, it, yeah, it's a tough question to answer, because I, I think each company will have their, their different reasons for doing it. Uh, I suppose in the case of this Wisconsin company, they... They feel like there's there's an added efficiency. Uh, you know, they won't have to issue cards. They can just put the. I don't know. I I, I mean, for some companies, I think that it, it, the the efficiency, uh, the effic- efficacy will be one reason. But then there could be other reasons why they might want to do it, which could be collaboration or it could be, uh, you know, productivity. I mean, generally, those are the reasons uh, why companies will, will implement something like this, especially when it costs them three hundred dollars a pop. 
to put it in someone's hand. Uh, so for sure, there must be those factors must be in there in order for them to even consider this. Um, I think they were just surprised at the response. Uh, what about, well, let, let's go through. Uh, what about the health? I mean, can this, uh, can anybody concerned about health, having a chip like this uh, in your body? Is there any concern for that? Yeah, it's a very reasonable uh, concern, I think, because that's where there's one of those unknowns. Like, what happens if this chip kind of falls out of place? What happens if it gets lost somewhere in there? You know, I mean, I think these things are reasonable to assume uh, that they could happen. Now, I don't, I'm not an expert as far as the, the bionics of all these things and how they stay in place and so on. I know the chip is very small, so I think that that adds to the concern because if it's so small, then, you know, something could happen uh, and it falls out of place. And then what, right? What if it leaks? I mean, you know, is there a potential for it to leak something that it shouldn't be uh, into the bloodstream? Uh, I, I think those are all reasonable things to to consider, and I know that uh, I know that there there has been approval for using chips when it comes to medical uh, practices, uh, but I don't know which ones exactly they've been approved for. Is uh, this legal? What this company is doing? I mean, can they even ask whether, even though it's volunteer, can they ask people to do this? Is this legal for them? Do you think? Apparently, it is. Yeah, apparently it is. Yeah, they 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 they, they asked because they had the legal uh, because the, 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 they they weren't doing anything that was against the law, and and because it's voluntary uh, and nobody's being nobody's having this done to them uh, on you know without their consent. Uh, basically, they're good to go. There's no, uh, there's no problem or any, uh, anything illegal about what's going on there. What about laws? Are there uh, the right laws or laws that apply to this in place, or will this have to be completely looked at and, and revamped as far as the legal profession? Yeah, I think there's going to be some catch-up. I think, as usual, the government's going to have to catch up, uh, you know, much like we've been seeing lately with drones. Uh, the, the government is going to have to catch up and then figure out what is the best uh, combination of, you know, of laws and, and, and regulations in order to make sure that, uh, that everybody's protected and that things don't get out of hand with this. And, and they have to do it fast. I mean, this isn't something that you can do at a, at a very slow pace, in my view. I think, just like with drones, I understand the, what they're trying to do. I mean, I, I don't think they're going about it the right way, but that's another conversation. But I think that with, with something like this, where you're talking about implants, um, there's going to be a lot of different voices, I think, that are going to want to weigh in on that uh, when it comes to legislation. So uh, I wouldn't want to be one of the, one of the, one of the uh, uh, MPs trying to draft that, but uh, either way, I think they're going to have their hands full um, in, uh, in putting something together that I think will make everybody happy. How do you keep privacy experts happy on this? Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's, that's a big one, right? I mean, privacy is definitely going to factor in on this. And, and perhaps part of the conversation here is generational because maybe the, maybe the younger generation may not care as much about that since they have grown up in a very different way when it comes to privacy, whereas some of us might have a different uh, perspective. Either way, I think privacy has to be ensured. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't put a chip in someone and say, oh, by the way, you're basically all your privacy to us they can consent to that but i mean even i don't i don't even think we'd even get that far i think it'd be scandalous to basically say hey we're going to implant this chip in you and we're basically going to track you the entire time and we're going to know everything about you i mean that's just that's just scary that's the kind of thing a sci-fi movie is made of and 
that being said, you know, we're all carrying it around in our pocket. What difference does it make if it's actually embedded uh, under our skin? And in bringing up the generational point that you did, uh, as I mentioned, back in the day, there was an issue when, uh, you know, municipalities or whatever were putting up uh, security cameras in place. Now, of course, everyone has a camera. Uh, everyone's got a GPS device in their phone where they can be tracked, where they're, you know, they certainly have the ability to turn that off and on. But explain the generational thing. Will it get to a point where, uh, you know, young people grow up with this technology, they don't care if they're being tracked? Yeah, so that's a great counterpoint. I was actually going to make that myself. So thank you for segueing to that because the it's true that the phone actually does far more in terms of tracking and, 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 and lack of privacy than this chip does. So the chip, again, is only RFID. It's only for you to open a door or, you know, to, to, it, it's only a one-way conversation, so to speak. Whereas a phone is constantly taking data in and it's uploading data out, too. So by that standard, if a chip is to do the same thing, it's, it's really... There's no real difference. I mean, some people might like that, the idea that, hey, okay, if I wear, if I have a chip in my hand and then maybe I'm wearing a pair of glasses or something that, that talks to that, essentially I, have a, I don't need the phone anymore. Um, some people might find that really appealing and say, okay, why should, I, why should I carry a phone if I can do everything I need to do with a chip inside? And if the chip can also interface with my, just basically my anatomy in some way, uh, and, and give me, uh, a, you know, some sort of a, a diagnostic, if you will, over my health, uh, then, yeah, I, I actually think a lot of people will find that interesting and appealing. I, was, um, I heard an interesting take on this today where uh, someone said that, you know, everybody was worried that robots were going to replace people. No, what's actually happening is the people are turning into robots. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the I think cybernetics are something that uh, we will see uh, possibly in our lifetime. Um, you know, people who have suffered traumatic spinal injuries and things like that who might have another uh, lease on life uh, through cybernetics. It's very possible, and it usually starts with something small uh, like a chip embedded in a hand. Um, I'm not a futurist, so I, I can't I can't really paint a, a solid picture of that. But I wouldn't be surprised if we eventually head in that direction. Is this any different than the chip we put in our pet's ear to find them if they get lost? Well, there's tracking involved in that. Yeah, good so, point. Right. So with, with the pet, it, the idea behind that is to is to track your pet in case it runs away. Uh, that's not what's going on. Is it is it really that, or is it just a case if someone finds it, they can find out who the owner is? Does it actually track your pet? And, you know, people are complaining about this tracking you. Well, if you're taking your dog for a walk, you're being tracked anyway. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, in, in, in most cases, from what, I, what I've understood, is that the person finds a dog and then is able to uh, to figure out who the owner is. But then again, I mean, tags have done that for a long time, too. Um, so I know that there was a tracking element that was uh, embedded in some of the experimental stuff that they were doing uh, with pets, So, which makes sense because, you know, the pet runs away. It's not necessarily going to encounter someone who's willing to give the pet back. Uh, so, you know, you want to track it. I, I get that, but that's not, that's not what's happening in this case with this trip that this Wisconsin company is doing. There's no tracking involved whatsoever. It's simply just, uh, it's basically a replacement for the key card is really what it, what it comes down to. One listener emails, can't they do the same with fingerprints or a retina scan? Do you need a chip? 
Yeah, so those are biometrics, so retina scans uh, and fingerprints, which we've seen uh, already in phones. Uh, yeah, they could, but uh, this company, for whatever reason, I, you know, I'm not sure. They decided that they would at least, and again, I, they, they put this out there thinking they weren't going to get a lot of feedback. Uh, and instead, they were, they were overwhelmed that a majority of their employees actually wanted to do this in lieu of any of the other options. Mm. So that, I thought, I mean, that surprised them as much as it would surprise us. How does that change the discussion, though, Ted? If, it, like, all of a sudden it's not so much that this company's going to put a chip in your in, in your finger, uh, but the reaction that everybody thought, wow, this is a great idea. Will that not advance this discussion? Probably. I mean, it, it, usually for people who, uh, like, think about it, right? If someone who gets this, ch- uh, this chip implanted in their hand, uh, and they love it, and then this, you know it's it's kind of like when you get your first tattoo. I don't have any, but my understanding is <laughs> you get your first one, and then you want like five more after that. Yeah. So I, 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 there's a very, I mean, I think there's a real possibility that that the same halo effect happens here too, where people start off with a chip in the hand, and then you know they're like, okay, you know what, maybe can I get something you know implanted in my eye or you know or somewhere else that will enhance uh, my life in some way. So it, it, it sounds crazy, but I mean, I, I don't think we're, we're that far off. Funny you should say that, Ted, because one note I have says penile microchips for contraception. Yeah. Why not? So where is this going? Where can you see this going in 10 years? Because I think, as, as you said, most would have been surprised that anybody was even into this and willing to do it on a voluntary basis. So where does it go in the next five to 10 yeah, I think two things for me is uh, is embedding some of the things we do on our phones into chips that can then be implanted in us. That's always a potential uh, potentiality. And I think also prosthetics. Um, if you can combine mm-hmm. prosthetics with uh, these types of, you know, this type of technology, whether it's a chip or whether it's something else, uh, that I think could be a real life changer for people too. Uh, that's why I mentioned the spinal injuries earlier. Now that's, I mean, that's cybernetic. That's, that, that's even more advanced, but I think if you can combine some of this technology with prosthetics, uh, that I think would make for a pretty interesting combination mm. uh, that would really, you know, I think would really help people who have suffered some really traumatic injuries. That would be a miracle. Uh, lots of chatter in the last couple of years of, uh, on wearables, about wearables, watches and such, haven't really caught on. Is this the way to make wearables profitable? I mean, forget putting it on, put it in. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's it's uh, this is the tr- I mean this is a true wearable because you you, you never take it off and, uh, and and you never have to worry about you know whether it's weather conditions or whether it's in the water or whatnot. Uh, so I think for a manufacturer that's appealing, but again, uh, you know there's a there's a there's a reason why uh, some people prefer to take something off and put it on. Um, so I don't know that you'll. I don't know that they'll be able to get most people on board with that yet. Uh, but the, wear, the the issue with wearables primarily is that they, there's a lot of people, I think, who feel like it doesn't really change their life in some way. Uh, technology usually becomes huge uh, or really resonates with people when they feel like it's changed their life somehow. It could just be their lifestyle, but either way, the paradigm doesn't shift that much. They still feel like their life is better because they use technology uh in some way that makes it that way so i think if, if they if they feel that way about this type of bio you know this type of bio, uh, bionic uh, tech or biotech then who knows 
Uh, some say pretty soon we won't need to speak or react to each other. Will we? Uh, will, are we heading there? Let's hope not. Uh, uh, you know, the, the anti-social concerns are already uh, relevant even today, uh, simply because of phones. So hopefully that doesn't, it doesn't come to that. Again, not being a futurist, I, I can't be absolutely sure, uh, you know, what uh, that might lead to. But hopefully, I, I would say hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully, um, hopefully it's, a, it's a little bit of a different case where maybe we become more social because of it. Hmm. You know, who knows? I don't know. Ted Kritsanis has been with us, tech journalist, by teddyk.com to find out more. Ted, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Fascinating stuff. Always a pleasure. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.